Hello everyone, it's John Pappas, working with my friends at GeoComply, and I want to welcome you to the Pappas iGaming Podcast. This podcast covers a wide range of issues in the iGaming, sports betting, and iLottery space. In this edition, we're going to be looking at sports betting in the District of Columbia. As you may know, just before Christmas, a bill was approved in D.C. that authorizes in-person and mobile sports betting. This bill includes a number of unique components not seen in any other sports wagering legislation. And these components are going to significantly impact operators, regulators, and players. Just a few days after the bill passed, GeoComply convened a panel of industry experts for a webinar to discuss the new bill and analyze what it means for the sports betting ecosystem. This podcast is essentially the audio portion of the GeoComply webinar, which I moderated, with a panel that included Lindsay Slater, VP of Regulatory Affairs at GeoComply, Matt Carey, reporter at Gambling Compliance, Chris Dugan, Chief Communications Officer with Genius Sports Group, and Chris Silkey, Vice President of Government Relations at the American Gaming Association. If you're interested in sports betting, I think you'll find this podcast to be extremely interesting, as it takes a deep dive into some of the unique requirements of the D.C. Bill. So thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. So if you've been asleep for the past seven months and just woke up today to tune into this discussion, you've missed a lot. And honestly, if you've been sleeping for just the past 24 hours, you've also missed a lot. So no sooner than a sports betting bill passed the Washington, D.C. City Council, six blocks away at the U.S. Capitol, federal lawmakers introduced their own sports betting bill. And as many have heard, there's rumors of other federal actions with respect to Internet gaming and sports betting. Um, you know, if Usain Bolt, I think, would be jealous of the speed by which sports betting policy debate is running across the country. And that is why we're very fortunate that our friends at GeoComply have assembled this esteemed panel and to help us understand the bill that was approved in D.C. and what impact it will have on other efforts to legalize sports betting in the United States. And GeoComply is not only the gold standard when it comes to geolocation, but they're also uh, convening uh, experts like this to talk about how uh, federal policy and state policies impact everyone who has an interest in the internet gaming and sports betting space. So thank you to GeoComply for doing this. So to set the stage for the discussion, I'd like to quickly walk through some key details contained in the bill that cleared the DC Council on, on Tuesday. So here are some key points, and I think we'll be touching on most of these during our discussion today. Um, the first point is that it establishes the D.C. Lottery as the sole provider of mobile sports wagering, with some ex exceptions. Uh, it creates a Class A sports wagering facility, facility license for four D.C. sports venues. It grants these Class A licenses exclusivity for their sports betting product, whether it be mobile or in-person, at the venue and within a two-block radius of that venue. It also allows for Class B licenses to operate in-person and mobile sports betting at restaurants, bars, and hotels. Uh, it also allows for existing lottery retailers to apply for a license to offer sports betting. So if a convenience store or another store has uh, uh, lottery products now, they can apply for a license and offer what would I likely believe a, a kiosk style sports betting. 
Um, it upholds the prohibition on gambling on federal property and federal lands. Um, this is an interesting characteristic of the DC bill that we'll, we will be discussing. Um, it also requires licensed operators to partner with minority and women-owned businesses, again, a unique feature of the D.C. bill. Uh, there was no mandated integrity fee, uh, as been uh, was discussed and, and included in previous versions, but removed. And then finally, um, because the D.C. lawmakers have said all along that, you know, they're going to do this and it may need to be uh, improved in the future, they are directing in two years that they do a study that evaluates how D.C. sports betting is performing in relation to other jurisdictions. So there's a lot of things, obviously, to cover here today, and, and I want to jump right into it by asking uh, Matt from Gambling Compliance, who's been covering this uh, since Jack Evans introduced his bill just, just really a few short months ago. And, you know, as he said on Tuesday, he wanted the D.C. he wanted D.C. to act really quick an act before any surrounding states could pass their own bill. Um, and he obviously believes in a first mover advantage. So Matt, how did we get to the bill that passed on Tuesday? And are there other hurdles to clear before DC begins implementing its sports betting program? All right, John. Well, thanks for having me, first of all. And it's like you said, the biggest stated goal for, for DC council was they wanted to get out in front of Maryland and Virginia, and they wanted to try and capture uh, a good chunk of the market share early and with so many commuters coming in from those states coming to the district every day for work. I mean, I get it. I'm one of them. Um, so this this bill kind of turned into to ground zero for a lot of different fights that are happening in sports betting debates all over the country, whether it's leagues versus operators over integrity fees and official data or it's the battle for between uh, traditional casinos and states lottery, state lotteries to try and gain a foothold in the sports betting market. And here in D.C., the lottery clearly won out. They have basically a, a monopoly over legal and re retail and mobile betting in almost the entire district. It's something that the CFO and the lottery pushed for pretty hard, and they fended off a pretty significant lobbying effort. I mean, the heavy hitters from operators were here. The, the leagues were active in lobbying here. And the local sports teams, Ted Leonsis is Monumental Sports, which owns the Capitals and the Wizards, uh, the Washington Nationals, they were all Pretty much, they were all aligned. It was a it's an unlikely alliance between the group, trying to to advocate for a more competitive market here. Um, the hurdles for them here is first, it's it's getting the bill to become permanent law. That needs the mayor signature, uh, which everyone's expecting. Um, it also needs a 60-day review period from Congress. Uh, that would require. Um, action from both houses and the president's signature, that's a pretty rare occurrence, very rare occurrence in D.C. for uh, a D.C. council bill. Um, but after that, the challenge is just putting together a, a sports betting operation. It's, it's putting out a mobile product that people want to use. It's, it's geo-blocking around some of these red flagged areas that you mentioned with the, the Class A, uh, what are called designated facilities. Um, and it's marketing the product to, to get um, the volume and the margins they need for this to be a success. Um, and you had mentioned the, the the study in two years. That was in the last amendment to the bill that, that passed on Tuesday. Uh, a lot of the council members who had backed this system said, hey, if this doesn't work, some point we'll pivot, we'll switch to a more private operator-based model. But this is what our CFO is pushing and we're gonna back them on it. So to me, I kind of see that two year mark as something of a report card for the lottery. 
at that point, if they don't hit any snags and they're able to launch sometime around middle of 2019 is what they're projecting, they'll have about 18 months of returns in. And that's probably a pretty decent sample for them to decide on how it's going and if kind of if they want to adjust from there. And they could potentially go to a more private driven market as well at that point, right? Absolutely. Yeah, they, they have, there's, there's language in the bill that makes that a pretty easy transition for them. And the case a lot of supporters of the lottery centric system made was essentially, you, you know, once you take the toothpaste out of the tube, you can't put it back in again. Um, right. Their position was it's much easier to switch from a lottery centralized system to private operators than look at than the other way around and go from a private operator based system and say, no, we prefer to bring everything back in house. So two quick follow-ups on that. So the emergency designation, though, even though congressional review is still required, it does mean that D.C. can begin implementing implementing regulations to set up their program, right? They don't have to wait for congressional review to begin that? Correct. The way it was described as when they passed the legislation, the emergency legislation was, you know, we need to make, start allocating funds. We have the funds to spend, but we need authorization to spend them in order to start the ball rolling on this. Okay, great. Well, um, uh, Chris, kind of listening how this developed and how the um, the lottery, uh, as, as Matt put it, kind of won out the battle. Uh, I know that the um, uh, the treasurer, the chief financial officer for the District of Columbia is really convinced that a, a single lottery vendor model would be the most advantageous for the district. Um, that necessarily hasn't been the case in other jurisdictions where there are multiple operators, private lottery and others. Uh, but, you know, AGA, you guys have taken the real leadership role on sports betting policy from you know, a few years ago. And because of your great work, I think we're at the point where states are legalizing betting. So, uh, you know, based on your guys' reaction to the D.C. bill, I I trust there's some mixed emotion about it. And uh, do you view the bill that passed in D.C. as progress or does it set a concerning precedent? Well, thanks, John. And thanks, GeoComply, for for letting me participate in this. Uh, Yeah, definitely some mixed emotion, I think. And we, we put out a statement and uh, we had been engaged, I think, uh, you know, to a lesser degree on D.C., but we did recognize it was an important sort of beachhead for a lot of these uh, these conversations going forward. But, you know, on one hand, it's hard not to uh, to acknowledge and commend them for the fact that they have uh, done what we we hoped would happen post-PASPA, which is, um, you know, create a legal marketplace for consumers that give them an alternative to to place wagers, uh, which did not exist uh, outside of, you know, Nevada and uh in Delaware on a very limited basis uh, before PASPA was struck down in May. Um, on the other hand, you know, you guys touched on it, the mobile, um, the way that they set that up with the lottery having sort of a virtual monopoly. We feel like it's a real missed opportunity on their part. Uh, again, you know, the, we're talking about um, competing with an illegal market that offers really a lot of accessibility and convenience. Um, and it's, it's going to be a challenge on its own to get customers to um, to move away from it towards a legal market. And so uh, we think that a better way to go would have been to, uh, you know, provide a little bit more competition, allow more operators to get into the space, uh, you know, have them competing, have them all um, using some of their uh, proceeds for, for marketing, which is, is really important, I think, to uh, make sure that people know that there is a legal product uh, available to them. Um, and then, you know, just the way that it's laid out with some of the exclusive, exclusivity zones, um, and, and, you know, mobile 
um, kind of, uh, and Lindsay will get into it later, being blocked in some areas. I think it's going to be uh, for for DC customers sort of a confusing and somewhat frustrating uh, experience when they do try to use mobile because it'll it'll work in certain locations and it won't work in others. Um, and frankly, again, back to my original point. The illegal market is accessible by uh, by anyone, you know, pretty much everywhere at any time. So, um, again, I think if that's if there's one missed opportunity that we wanted to highlight, uh, that's it. Great, and I think your your comments about it kind of being somewhat fragmented plays into what I wanted to ask uh, Chris from uh, Genius Sports. I mean, you, your company is really focused on delivering products that enhance the fan experience and brings them closer to the action and based on all the, the ways that people in D.C., if everything in this bill comes to fruition, people will have tremendous access to a variety of sports betting options, but it's going to be very fragmented. And, and uh, where you bet and how you bet uh, will be very different depending on where you're standing in the city. I want to see what your thoughts on or how this will uh, impact the consumer sports betting experience. Yes, thank you, John, and thank you very much, Gio and Comply, to inviting Genius Sports to participate in this debate. Um, firstly, I think it's fascinating to see within a very short period of time, and we've been involved in the US um, on an integrity front for the past four years with Major League Baseball, with the PGA Tour, and obviously in the UK with the English Premier League, and we work closely with the American Gaming Association on educating key stakeholders around the integrity piece of this. However, we do offer sports betting uh, products, services, and platforms to lottery providers around the world, including Danske Spiel in Denmark, OPAC in Greece. So we're familiar with the lottery model. However, as uh, Chris quite rightly pointed out, if you attempt to limit the uh, competition in a sports betting environment, you risk um, customers looking for other options in the market. Because as America knows more than any other uh, free democracy and free market in the world, where you have competition, you have innovation. And where you have innovation, you have diversity of product sets and you have an attempt on the part of different businesses to compete for consumer attention. Now, I think that's a key point here that when you have the DC lottery, you're going to have this fragmented experience uh, where you're moving between an in-game experience, perhaps down at the Capital One Center. I, I mean, I live in DC, so I, by geography, I am a, uh, a Nats fan, I am a Caps fan, I am also a Wizards fan. But when you go to these centers to watch the game, you're going to have a very different experience than when you step out and beyond the two-block perimeter and then you step into a licensed, let's say, store, which has gained a license through the lottery, which has a fixed odds betting terminal, a touchscreen. I think it could be a little bit of a challenge to make sure that there's, A, some consistency, and B, that there is a diversity of offering where you are offered a range of different betting products that attract sports bettors to engage. And that's absolutely key because one of the things that we know from our conversations 
are that the leagues like this from the engagement point of view, from the fan ability point of view. We have a whole new generation of sports consumers, the so-called millennials. And those millennials don't engage with sports in the same way as people of my generation, where you'll watch the whole, whole game. So it's absolutely key that the sports betting experience that they are exposed to is the best possible product, eh? And that they're not restricted to certain market types. So it should be product driven through competition. My concern here is, is that you will, you may restrict that. Right, right. Well, it, you know, the um, uh, because of this fragmented marketplace that we've talked about and that, you know, you could be at uh, uh, the Nationals ballpark and wagering on one app and then walk two blocks away and be uh, not be able to wager on that app but have to go to find another product, uh, whether it be the um, – lottery product or go into a, a bar or restaurant that has sports betting itself, um, it creates, I think, a, a really interesting challenge for geolocation. And, and that's why uh, Lindsay from GeoComply, I, I, you know, your company is kind of the trusted partner for regulators and operators because your technology ensures that they're not in violation of federal laws and in this state in this case well, you know violating any of the uh, exclusion zones that are established in in the dc bill um so uh, can you explain how your technology can be used to enforce um, you know the ban on wagers from federal lands within the district which are vast and secondly how you ring fence sports stadiums and their two block radius to restrict unauthorized wagering in these zones Sure, yeah, thanks very much, John. Um, this DC uh, prospect of sports betting is the most unique use case I think we've ever encountered. Um, DC is a seven by 10 mile area, it's tiny. Uh, so, I mean, there are, are, the whole state of New Jersey is accepting online uh, uh, sports bets. It's uh, enough of a challenge to ring fence that area when you have the you know, greater New York City area so close to the state. Um, this is kind of takes things to a whole new level, not just because it's such a tiny area um, where you need very accurate geolocation technology to ring fence the district and ensure you're only taking bets from uh, the, the allowed area, but then things get even more complicated uh, with the idea of federal land. Um, so the bill also details how gambling in any form on federal land, that would include anything administered by the national parks or owned by the government, uh, has to be blocked. Um, obviously this is already something that the, the, the lottery would be following in terms of where they approve retailers who sell lottery tickets. Um, and the same would go for any in-person sports betting, but when you're talking about mobile sports betting, uh, the map that you see here, all those green areas, you'd have to cut out and make sure that when you're on your mobile app, be it the, the DC Lottery app or uh, any other licensed operators app in their designated zones, that um, you would be blocking all traffic from those areas. It's definitely possible, um, but I, I would say it's gonna present a unique challenge uh, like. The uh, uh, like Chris Dugan was was speaking about for for tourists walking around the city, 
uh, trying to understand you know, what app they're supposed to be on and why they can or cannot play as they, they wander from block to block within the city. Is, is the concern there that consumers will then just kind of get frustrated by not knowing and, and choose not to play or, or even worse, revert to kind of the illegal sites that they may have been using uh, before legalization came to D.C.? I think it's going to be really important that uh, anyone offering a mobile app invests a significant amount of time instructing players and educating players on uh, wit, what and where they can access these betting products, um, because otherwise it's, it's just going to be a massive frustration, I would say. Um, right. If you want to flip to the next slide, uh, we can talk a little bit about these areas uh, around the sports facilities. Um, so the bill specifies that within these four designated facilities and the two block radius around them, uh, they will go to uh, licensed operators uh, who will have the, the right to offer their app rather than the lottery's own app. Um, so for anyone who's traveling all over the city, they're going to need to know that at home I can use the lottery app. When I go to a hockey game, I may need to install another app and use that one within the uh, within the, the arena, within the couple blocks around it. And then ensuring that all the technology built into this is ring fencing the appropriate areas with the appropriate apps uh, to keep everyone where they're supposed to be. Right. Well, I, I think challenges are abound, and I, 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 we'll get to another slide a little later in our discussion that kind of um, uh, shows kind of what why that might be a challenge and, and, and of, of interest to some of the folks who are already engaged in the sports betting space in other in other jurisdictions and saw DC as an opportunity, but may may not be as enthused about it now. Um, uh, we had a question from a panelist here or from one of our attendees, and I, I want to get to it because I think it's a good question. It's something that should be clarified. It, it asks is, will a third party operators be able to operate with a license issued by the lottery or is the lottery going to be the risk management company where the physical location would be license holder and the lottery? So essentially, is the lottery itself going to be operating or are they going to be working with a third party? Um, is there anybody who would like to to, to take that? I think the way that, that I've read it so far is that if you're in one of these appointed zones, it's going to be whoever holds the license to that particular area, and they're going to be managing their own systems to have that uh, advantage of an exclusive system, exclusivity, um, be it uh, their own mobile app or kiosks inside a, a stadium. Uh, yeah, that that the lottery wouldn't be touching. It's a very right. interesting question because, you know, when you are, if Intralot are the provider to the DC lottery. Which or, which they are. Yeah, which is the platform, the PAM, the, the player account management, the transaction engine, uh, the sports book itself. Um, there's various plug-in services to that. But where the trading takes place is the big question. So where the trading on the games takes place. Now, whether that is provided through Interlot or a third-party provider, TBD. 
However, the it, it is a very, very good question. Like, will Intralot work with other partners and how will the licensing around that work? In a nascent market in the US, and I, you know, New Jersey has certainly led the way since FASPA was struck down. The New Jersey Department of Gaming Enforcement and Director Reebok certainly are thought leaders and understand this market. Um, the District of Columbia and the lottery have to think very carefully how this is going to work. And then when you're getting down to the actual stadium and the property owners and who applies for the license and, and are there sub-licenses around uh, platform providers and data providers, it's, it's quite a complex question. Great, great. Um, Hey, John, I would just add, I think, you know, the fact that there is a, a separate license available for suppliers sort of, uh, you know, indicates that there will be, they do expect, um, you know, some other technology providers other than the Lotto to provide back-end, uh, you know, support within some of the Class B establishments. Okay, great. Um, uh, Matt? you know the dc has set an ambitious goal for sports betting and they say they want to raise more than 90 million dollars in tax revenue for the district of columbia over the next four years uh, I, I thought it was interesting um, jack evans comment during the the hearing was kind of somewhat cavalier let, let, and i think he said let's hope a lot of people gamble and we make a lot of money uh, to fund these programs um I, I obviously hope is not a revenue strategy. Um, so do, do we believe that this is a realistic figure or, or, or do you think DC may be setting themselves up here? I think it's an aggressive uh, projection. I mean, the, the, the CFO and the lottery, they're banking on a high hold model where they hold about 20% of bets or more. Um, a typical Vegas style sports book holds about five to 10%. New Jersey in its first few months has held about 6%. Obviously it's a big leap from six to 20%. Um, but the, with the lottery model, one thing they're banking on is a lot of retail betting. It has typically higher margins because it's, it's more of a convenience bet than somebody shopping for the best odds. It's also a lot of novelty bets, your parlays, your futures. Um, online business on the other hand, that's a tougher to maintain such a high hold because like both of the Chris's mentioned earlier, while you don't have you know, legal competitors in the market, there's still a, you know, an illegal, illegal market where betters are more likely to find better odds than the DC lottery is going to be offering. Um, the CFO project, projected this out four years and in the fourth year, 2022, he projected that the market would produce 81 million in gross gaming revenue between the lottery and the, um, private operators that, that operate in the designated facilities and whoever else gets the Class B licenses. Now, our projections at Gambling Compliance had the market around 50 million in that same year, but the bill has some mitigating factors on either side. Our projections not taking into account what could really be a, a destination sports book at Capital One Arena, Nats Park. Those are obviously huge uh, sports betting locations because that's where sports take place. It's the perfect place to capture sports fans. Um, that could be really successful, but it's also assuming a more traditional competitive market, which is, as you guys mentioned earlier, is leads to more products, more marketing, just more engagement. Um, I don't think the projections are 
absurdly unrealistic. Um, but I also think it's going to be pretty difficult for the lottery to bring in that kind of hold with their online product, especially given you know the early returns from some of the states that have rolled out sports betting, even besides Nevada, New Jersey, we've seen just how popular online betting is. It's, it's more popular than brick and mortar betting at this point. Um, I do think, though, a lot of states and more specifically state lotteries are going to be looking to see, you know, can they pull this off? Because if D.C. can pull off a high hold model where they're bringing in 20 percent of bets or more, while other states are bringing in 10 percent on taxes of gross gaming revenue, it changes the changes the discussion quite a bit. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and, and sports bettors are likely to shop with their fingers when it comes to pricing on on lines that they get for games. So if the D.C. lottery isn't offering the line that they think is competitive, uh, they will they will flip over to something else that they think may, they may be able to get a, a better line for. Now, there may be some uneducated consumers, but, you know, with the explosion of sports betting over just the last year and the discussion of it, there are so many ways that the consumers are getting smart about sports betting and understanding how to do it. And, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how the DC lottery adapts to that. And, and if in fact that 80% hold uh, is going to be uh, something that is really viable for the consumer. Um, I, uh, I was wondering if there is uh, you know, uh, for, for you, uh, Chris at the AGA, you know, how do you guys set expectations when you go into another jurisdiction for, let's say, the D.C. Uh, model? If you go to another state, will, will you point to this to say these are some issues with it and here's where we think you can, can correct it? If the D.C. model over the next year doesn't produce the revenue that's promised, will that be a challenge for you when you go to other states that they'll point to that and say, well, look, D.C. isn't doing what they said, then that means we're not going to be able to raise the revenue that that we want to. So how do you guys manage something like that when talking to other jurisdictions and, and, and looking at DC, whether it will succeed or fail? Yeah, look, I mean, it's, it's a tricky business trying to project revenue. Um, and we've, we've for the most part tried to stay out of, out of that just because we want to uh, temper expectations uh, to some degree, because a lot of the, the early moving states, I think have kind of, you know, they've seen some of the, the, projections that we put out there in terms of the size of the legal market uh, and the handle, which is the overall all amount bet. And they've said, you know, we're going to we're going to do really, really well off of this. And, um, you know, you never want to be in a position as a the casino industry uh, for people to be, you know, uh, expecting lofty expectations and then under delivering. And so I think, you know, part of the conversation in um, in each new market where it's being debated is kind of explaining the economics of, of the traditional uh, sports book. Uh, model, uh, which as as you know, Matt kind of uh, characterized, is is a you know fairly low hold and a fairly low margin business um, to begin with, um, and really trying to make sure that you know people don't see it as a cash cow. Um, now I think you know we'll have enough data points with New Jersey and Pennsylvania and some of the other jurisdictions out there um, where you will start to get a real picture, um, you know, within the 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 review period that DC set out of two years, uh, where you can make some, you know, sort of apples to apples uh, comparisons about whether their model is, uh, is you know, successful um, versus some of the other states that have adopted uh, different models. Um, you know, I think that our, our expectation is that this, you know, lottery only uh, system will not, uh, will not succeed to the way that they think it will. 
um, because of you know probably a little bit of overpromising by by the lottery in terms of uh, you know their their high hold model, which I think has been you know panned in the in the local press here and by some of the gaming industry um, uh, press as well. Um, so I don't think it's going to do as well, and we we kind of you know understand just uh, a little bit of the behavior of the sports better as has been discussed a little bit as well. Um, so it'll it'll all be interesting to see how how things play out. But this is certainly you know we're as we move to different jurisdictions, this is not going to be a recommended uh, sort of you know blueprint for how to move ahead. Um, and I think we'll be you know raising the same kind of concerns if this starts to become. Uh, you know, a model that other states uh, pursue. But, uh, you know, I would imagine DC is very unique in that it doesn't have any uh, casino gaming operations here. The Lotto was, you know, a, uh, a strong voice, as you kind of hinted at in your in intro remarks. Um, and really, you know, not many people with no casino gaming here knew how to effectively lobby uh, the DC Council. And, and I think that kind of kind of showed in the in the final results. Right, it's certainly a different beast here in Washington D.C. And kind of, I am a D.C. resident, have been for the last 21 years, and I'm actually really the one thing in all of this I'm really excited about is the ability to uh, place wagers, uh, live wagers at a sporting event, as is allowed in this bill. Um, I, I think, if, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Chris, uh, with, with with sports or Genius Sports. Um, is this the first jurisdiction in the U.S. that allows for for this? I know it's not unique. Um, and, and how do you expect it will work here in D.C. to have kind of live betting environment at sporting events? Yeah, I don't think I'm not sure it's the first, but I, I believe that um, one of the most important things here is that the in-game experience and looking to what's happened in other jurisdictions like the United Kingdom. So you go back 10 years. Ten years ago, in-game betting was about 30% of the market and 70 was pre-match. Ten years later, you can flip that on its head. 70% of sports wages placed in the United Kingdom are in-game. So next event, next goal, next corner, next free kick in soccer. Or if you're applying it to the football model, it's next touchdown, you know, next incomplete pass. It's the next event but what that provides that opportunity provides and what it's fueled by is data and that data that underpins those market types and those betting opportunities needs to be fast it needs to be accurate it needs to travel in a split second from the game to the sports betting operator and then to the customer because you need to be able to, if you have fast, accurate data, you can offer more market types. You can offer better products because you've got the fuel to power that book. You can offer sharper prices and you can keep your market open longer because you, what, what as a book you need to do is you need to be able to close a market. So there's something in soccer that they call a dangerous attack. So, so that if it looks like a striker or a player is, is about to score a goal in soccer, these bookmakers need to be able to close their markets so no one's going to beat the system. And it's absolutely critical that that data, the speed and accuracy of that data is reliable. Now, that brings up the larger question, which has been uh, 
circulating between the leagues and the operators and the casinos as to who provides that data, who takes responsibility for that data. And on the side of the sports, they're advocating that it's, some are advocating it's their IP, and others are arguing that from a commercial model point of view, in order to be able to compete in the marketplace, it needs to be fast and accurate. And that then lends itself to, do you have data distribution partners? Who has access to that data? Who owns that data? And that really is a can of worms and a big debate that has so happened does, certainly in Europe and now does, will, has come to the US. Does the DC bill address this in any way? I know there was an amendment with respect to uh, data, but I, you, you I said- I believe it does. It's been kicked on down the road, but it doesn't address it directly. So again, I, from a regulator point of view, it has to be approached very carefully. The leagues will obviously have their view. And if you are the DC lottery and whoever is responsible for regulatory oversight will need to look at this. So, you know, give you an example. Here in the United Kingdom, I mean, I'm in the UK at the moment, at a match, at a soccer match, you have the Premier League has, it asserts its rights to its sports data. It, it distributes that data, which is the fuel of the sports book, to sports books around the world. But what you also have and can have is people in hoodies with earphones transmitting that data to dark markets in the Far East without the sanction of the league. And that data is being what they would phrase here in the United Kingdom, pirated and distributed to sports books in, in other parts of the world. Now, what operators, and sports in the US want to decide is whether that is an okay practice and whether there needs to be some kind of agreement, whether commercial or regulatory, that restricts that kind of behavior. And that, that I think will be a very interesting debate as sports betting is legalized in the US going forward. Yeah, well, it's certainly been been to now, and I think it's only going to continue to grow. And, and interesting that DC bill doesn't directly address it, but it does leave that prerogative to the regulators. So I imagine there'll be a lot of education that's going to need to go on over the next several months. Um, hey, John, can I just add to that that you know, sure. obviously, it has debated in, in all of the jurisdictions where there is now legal sports betting. Uh, you know, this has been an issue, and and all of them have have you know, obviously heard the arguments on both sides and not incorporated anything to date. And clearly Nevada has been working for decades with sort of you know, uh, no, no requirements that uh, operators purchase uh, legal official data. I think Chris raised some good points about you know, that there is some commercial value there and it really comes from you know, the lack of latency. Um, but I think from AGA's perspective, you know, we are very leery of either states and or the federal government requiring that operators uh, purchase league official data uh, just because that, that raises some significant you know competition issues and to date the marketplace has really been been working this out and I think there's really incentives on the part of operators you know if they are going to offer these in-play bets uh, where latency and accuracy is a premium uh, you know they're going to partner with the leagues and we've already seen that in some instances and on the flip side of that, I don't think that you know operators have a significant risk when it comes to uh, on the uh, economic side if they get the the odds wrong 
uh, you know, they can lose a lot of money. And you actually saw that uh, with the glitch in uh, New Jersey where, uh, you know, an in-play uh, bet was, uh, was, was placed and, uh, you know, based on inaccurate odds and, and the sports book ended up having to pay out uh, a lot of money and had, had a, you know, a black eye as a, uh, as a consequence. So I would say that there are market forces that, uh, that also push the operators towards only using reliable sources of data uh, or only bet, allowing uh, bets for things where they are, they know that the, the data that they have access to is reliable enough to, to protect them. Great, great. Uh, Lindsay, uh, there's a question from a, from uh, an attendee that uh, kind of goes into one of our use cases and they ask about the class B uh, licenses and if that's restricted solely to restaurants, bars, and hotels uh, in the bill, and if there's any specific restrictions about what a retail definition is. So, um, interestingly enough, as we said, you know, we have three different classes of, of licenses here. You have the, the the vendors at the stadiums and the two block radius. You have uh, Class B licenses, which could be bought by DC businesses. Uh, I would think primarily restaurants, bars, and hotels, but we can, I don't know the exact definition of it. And then, then thirdly, you have the lottery retailers themselves who can offer um, sports betting at a convenience store through a kiosk or another format. Uh, and then obviously you have the DC lottery offering their mobile app. Um, so it, it, you know, there's obviously all these, these challenges here. First, do you know, Lindsay or anyone on the call on the panel know uh, what the definition of uh, of who would be able to apply for a, a, a Class B license is? Yeah, I, I think so. I'm um, just reading through the bill. Um, we can go a couple slides ahead. Um, I'll, I'll talk about a particular use case at the, the Capital One Arena. So this is uh, where where hockey and basketball is played, right in the the core of the city. Um, the uh, the, the class B retailers, bars, restaurants. Um, I, I don't know if there's specific rules on uh, how uh, you define a bar or restaurant. I think it probably has to do with city licensing, but in order to qualify as a retailer, um, you have to be an existing lotto ticket retailer. Um, so I, I'm expecting that that would be convenience store type establishment. Um, the way that the Class B licenses work, while they're uh, permitted to be issued to anyone who applies for that category, bars, restaurants, lotto retailers, uh, they aren't going to be granting them if they fall within that two-block radius of one of the sports facilities. So uh, taking the example of Capital One Arena, obviously it's in the, the core of the city. There are restaurants nearby, um, museums, all, all kinds of stuff. Uh, this is really going to be an exclusive zone for uh, the sports facility and their partners. Um, and in this case, I believe there's there's more than one partner who's uh, officially paired with the with the NBA and and NHL. Um, so as for how those work side by side, whether um, there will be more than one mobile app for this area, I. I don't know if anyone has worked out those specific details, but for the user, they're going to need to know that they'll have to be on one or more particular apps if they're inside this area. 
And then as soon as they leave, you know, going to grab dinner, coming to and from a game, they're going to have to switch over to the lottery app if they want to continue to play. Is there any flexibility in the law that allows for the Class A license holders that have the, the license for the arenas to then partner with folks within that two block radius to say, you, you know, you can have access, you'll have, you could do your own thing as long as we have a partnership? I, I have no idea. I, I'm not sure if it's actually defined in the bill. I uh, maybe it's it's possible, um, but I know that just the the general terms of those Class B licenses say they're not going to be issued uh, for inside these zones, the two block area. So right. at least in terms of the bars, restaurants, retailers, they're pretty much out of luck if they're really close to a sports facility. Right. Um, if, if we go back one slide, um, just to give the example of, of Nationals Park, uh, interesting use case, I dropped a pin on the Buffalo Wild Wings. They have an official sportsbook partner. Uh, and they're less than a block from the baseball park. So uh, they may be an establishment that otherwise would have applied for a Class B license to offer a, a mobile app through their official partner, but in this case, they're, they're not going to be able to do that. Um, it, it will be whoever the sports facility decides is going to provide the mobile app for this zone. Yeah, that, that, that is fascinating. Um, I, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to see, um, you know, how close to the edge these Class B licenses get to a sporting facility um, to to be able to offer their own wagering. I, I would imagine a lot of sports wagering will be done on-premises, but also people that are sports fans may be around the stadium at sports bars and other things that they'll want to wager. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in D.C. for sure. Uh, um, we had also had a question from a panelist, and, and Matt, maybe you can address this. Is What is the tax rate in um, – for, for the D.C. sports betting, and, and how do they get to that? Um, in D.C., it's going to be a, it'll be a 10% tax rate on any of the private operators. So the anybody who's in the designated facilities, the Class A licenses, um, anybody who's in a Class B license, it's a flat 10% because it's either mobile on site or it's um, in-person betting. Um, and then after that, there was uh, when the, the council have talked a lot about um, pivoting, basically, and the way they that way that's kind of structured is um, if they would eventually go to a, a more private operator based model, um, it gives the authority to um, enforce a 20 percent tax rate on mobile betting um, if they were to go in that direction. Um, but if but. As currently it stands, it's a 10% tax on um, any of the private operators who would be taking bets on the Class A or Class B licenses. Okay, great. Um, so this is a question for for Chris. You know, we are in uh, Chris with AGA. We are in the the shadow of the U.S. Capitol here in Washington D.C. Uh, and and what the D.C. City Council has done. Um, I'm sure is going to be closely looked at by by D.C. lawmakers. And, and as everyone probably knows, uh, federal lawmakers have introduced their own bill uh, recently. Uh, so, Chris, how do you think D.C. 
will be viewed under the microscope of Congress, or do you think will have any impact at all? You know, it's an interesting question, and and certainly I think it can cut both ways. I mean, for for our we're located in D.C. AGA has our our headquarters here, um, and and often um, you know try to our our main role in engaging the Hill is is educating them, and and a lot of times it's hard to to really um, make them understand things like sports betting or the you know the back of house. Uh, operations for a, a casino without bringing them there. So on one hand, you know, if you do do have a, a very kind of polished professional uh, sports book being run uh, at Nat Stadium or at the Capital One Arena, um, you know, it, it may be a great opportunity to, uh, to to build some educational program programming around that, get people more comfortable with the idea of sports betting and really how uh, well run it can be and how much thought goes into it. Um, on the other hand, you know, um, there are some things that we're, we're certainly mindful of in terms of if there's a, you know, uh, oversaturation of, of advertising here, or, um, you know, certain members that have uh, already have their kind of minds made up about sports betting, uh, you know, are seeing it everywhere um, that may may work negatively against us. Um, you know, obviously, we talked about the process for uh, for Congress uh, to, to review this, uh, you know, it's going to be a uh, 60-day window when when there's a lot happening in terms of uh, convening a new Congress and um, you know just people figuring out uh, committee assignments and frankly where the the bathroom is. So I'm not sure how much real attention it will get. Certainly, people who who do have a uh, an interest in the federal government uh, being involved in in sports betting may uh, want to uh, point to certain aspects of of the you know the DC process. Um, and and try to use that to you know get people on the hill interested. I think you know we'll we will not be obviously doing that since our our bent is against uh, Congress getting involved. Um, but I think it you know certainly to your question could could cut both ways uh, having DC so close to our our, uh, our Capitol building. Right. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch to see you know the success or failure of DC and and how that impacts what what Congress may do uh, with respect to sports betting. So I think it's something people are going to be watching closely. Um, a couple questions from the audience that I, I want to get to. Um, uh, it was saying that it was suggested that outside the arenas, uh, the two blocks area, that uh, the lottery has exclusive mobile rights. Um, that is, in fact, the case. They do have exclusive mobile rights. However, uh, if, can someone clarify, if you're a Class B license holder, you have a license to operate outside of, of the two-block uh, arena radius, can you offer a mobile platform within the confines of your building as well as in-person uh, sports betting, or is that not an option for the Class B license holders? Um, I, I can answer to that. Uh, from what I understand, it, it can be in-person or a mobile app. I'm thinking back to hearings maybe a few weeks ago with Jack Evans talking about you know the local bar. If they want to develop their own mobile app, they should have at it. Um, it's technically possible, but severely restricting in terms of uh, revenue potential. Um, but I think for the in-person part, there could obviously be kiosks and the like inside a bar, much like you'd see a standalone ATM. Um, for a, a mobile app, there's definitely the technology available to ring fence uh, a single bar or restaurant um, and could even be as specific as, you know, upstairs but not downstairs in the 
the bar bathrooms. Um, it, that kind of a scenario would probably require some hardware to help facilitate that. It's a different prospect than ring fencing the whole district or, or the stadiums in the two block radius, but it's, it's definitely possible if someone wanted to invest in it. Yeah. So when we when we get inside of those two block radius, what do you think uh, consumer usability will look like? Uh, how how will uh, a consumer who's in the stadium and then walking out of the stadium be able to use the, the mobile product? Either walking in and out of the stadium, or or even just caring about your your daily routine within the district, I think is going to be interesting from a usability perspective. You know, there's almost seven hundred thousand people that live within the district, but the greater metro area is over 6 million people. So you've got tourists in town, you have all kinds of government workers that are commuting into work. When you think about the ban on federal lands, those commuting workers, if they're going to you know, federally designated lands, they're not gonna be able to play when they're there, but maybe they need to use the DC lottery app on the way into work uh, when they're riding the subway. And then if they stick around town and either travel about the city or go to a hockey game after work, then they're going to need to know that they have to download the special app to use at the stadium and that it's really only going to work when they're there or when they're coming and going. So I would consider this a huge operational challenge for or the, the mobile app providers to, they're going to have to explain this to their users exactly how it's going to work. And maybe it's going to come hand in hand with, uh, you know, when you buy a, a ticket to a sports game, they're going to be marketing to you to download your particular app so that, you know, this is what I have to have lined up if I want to do in-play betting when I'm watching a baseball game, um, that it would be part of the your typical experience when you go there. Um, but it's, it's, I would consider it... Uh, a big possibility for just the average user or the, the confused tourist who's on the National Mall and going from museum to museum and they've, they've read about how sports betting is available, but they're going to be blocked if they're on federal parkland and they're at Washington Monument. So uh, education is going to be a really big part of marketing or else it will be wasted money. And it sets up an interesting dynamic because then you have a competition between an in-stadia betting experience, let's say on an app, that may be provided by a third-party provider that's different to what the DC lottery through Intralot may be offering. So your experience of an in-game event, uh, let's say at Nat Stadium, of Bryce Harper, of Next Pitch, or an in-game opportunity may be completely different that when you then get in your car, leave Nat Stadium and you're outside that two block perimeter to where you, or you may go into a fixed odds betting terminal in a, some kind of retail outlet or, or a licensed uh, place of operation, then that may be. So that, that presents a, an opportunity, but also a, a fragmentation that you referred to uh, earlier. Don't doubt that people are going to figure it out, though. I mean, I'm I'm trying to think of a similar retail experience where you know if, if I'm going to a particular grocery grocery store, I'm going to have my my points card, my rewards program for that particular chain, and I know I've got to open it on my phone if I want them to scan the app and I get points for it. Um, so I think 
people could definitely wrap their mind around needing to have a particular app based on the location of where they are. I think they're just not used to used to it for this kind of uh, um, this this type of product. It's very strange. Yeah, well, we're, we are uh, approaching the end. I wanted to answer a couple uh, of our attendee questions. One, they were asking if any rules have been promulgated around KYC registration. Um, and the answer to that is no. The, you know, the law has uh, some requirements in it that obviously KYC, age, identity, uh, geolocation all need to be part of, of the DC program. But that has not yet been uh, the no rules have been promulgated uh, at this point. Uh, Matt, uh, anything specific on on any requirements in the bill that I may not be aware of with respect to um, any of these compliance tools like KYC, age and identity verification? No, it's my understanding that all that's going to be resolved when the lottery puts out, excuse me, regulations. Um, They didn't. They, they, they tended to push a lot of it off to sort of regulators instead of requiring all of this by statute. Um, I, well, I think there's, you know, consensus, at least on this, on this call that, you know, there is this where everyone's excited that DC has kind of stepped forward and doing this. Yes. There's also some trepidation on, on how successful it will be given some of the, um, uh, limitations they've placed with uh, either competition or really extending, you know, uh, how people can play within the district if they're on federal lands, if they're at a sports arena within a two-block radius. Um, so I think, you know, we're going to see D.C. play out over the next several months and years, and and we have an, obviously an opportunity for the district to revisit everything within two years to say, uh, this isn't working well, or it is. It is working well, and we're going to continue uh, continue moving forward. And I think with that, we've pretty much come to the end of this webinar. I, I, we could have probably kept talking for another hour on, on so many different aspects of this bill, uh, and maybe we will be revisiting this uh, after the rules and regulations come out from uh, uh, from DC. Uh, but I want to thank everyone for participating, um, and uh, thank you to all of our expert panelists for the great information and insight they provided. And just a reminder that uh, GeoComply will be sending everyone that registered a link to the on-demand recording uh, for you to review again or to forward to someone who you think might be interested in this content. So thank you all again, and look forward to you joining a future GeoComply webinar.